Lord be with you. I haven't done this in way too long. Uh, what did the duck say when she bought lipstick? Put it on my bill. Good one. Okay. Remember, the goal of these jokes is to be painful. If you laugh, I'm not doing a good enough job. If you groan, you know, the reason I hate Russian dolls is that they're just so full of themselves. There we go. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get that out of there. Stop it. Colossians chapter 2. Listen to the word of the Lord. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. He's just finished telling us about how incredibly enough Jesus is. Now that they've found life in Jesus, the great danger is that someone else is going to come in and offer them life, and they'll add a little more, and they'll add a little more, and they'll add a little more, and the next thing you know, over time, they're way far from where they started, and they're no longer free. And the whole time, they thought everything that they were accepting was another upgrade. I'll take another upgrade. Great. Awesome. Yeah. And, and it was actually a downgrade. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. I doubt that as we read that, we're thinking, that's going to happen to me. Every single person thinks they're right. You, you agree with you. You ever say something and then you're like, dang, that was good. Yeah, of course you did. You're a human. You ever say something and then as soon as you said it, oh, that was absolutely terrible. Sometimes. But the whole idea here is it's real easy for us to assume that everyone else is stupid and we are smart. I heard a comedian say that society is idiots. Everyone's a moron. And the whole crowd did what? They clapped. They cheered. They said, that's right. These people are all morons. And I thought, you're clapping for yourself being stupid. But, but we have this thing where we assume other people are morons and we're above average. Other people are deceived and we are enlightened. Other people are kind of foolish and led astray, but we are wise. We are smart. And Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one. Mm, so it's not just the idea that you're sitting there praying and then, and then terrible deception comes on you. No, the idea here is terrible ideas are usually transferred socially. I used to say, some ideas are so bad you have to go to church to learn them. But then I figured out you can learn bad ideas anywhere from all kinds of people, not just in church. I don't know why we're so hard on church. I think it's just very convenient to be hard on church. Well, I went to church one time and they were almost as bad as me. It's like, okay, all right, so I went to a Lions Club, and they gossiped too. I went to, you know, I think what it is is we have really high standards for church people, and we don't have really high standards for, you know, how are they going to treat you at the secular job. See to it that no one takes you captive. So the kinds of influences Paul is concerned about for these brand new believers are social influences. 
And yes, he's concerned about worldly influences, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but what he's really concerned about is worldly church influences. Is that a phrase we can make up this morning? Worldly church influences? That a lot of what happens inside churches is worldly, but we don't think it's worldly. We think it's godly and biblical. But it's not intimately built on Christ, and it is deception that brings us into captivity, slavery. So let's just kind of parse through this. So we already did see to it, which means this could happen to us. See to it that no one takes us captive through philosophy. Well, that's an interesting idea. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. There's, that's easy. Then I just won't take any philosophy classes in college and I'll be free of that deception, right? So it means that Christians shouldn't be a philosophy major if they go to college, right? You're supposed to be shaking your heads. No. Because Justin, one of the first evangelists, lived like in the first generation after the apostles, one of the first martyrs for the Christian faith, he was a philosopher. But his whole philosophy was built on Jesus. And he was, he was deeply aware of the belief systems of the intellectual people of his age, of his time. He was well studied in them. So apparently you can study them and not be deceived. He was well studied in them. And he had a gift for explaining and showing how Jesus is superior and how Jesus is the answer to the quest that the secular philosophers were on. He was highly effective as an evangelist, and yet he was highly knowledgeable about philosophy. So what does Paul mean when he talks about us being deceived or taken captive through philosophy? A philosophy, well, how would you define what, if I said, what's your philosophy how is the word functioning right there? The way you think, Tom says. Someone's understanding of life. Another one says way of thinking. I would say a philosophy is a little different than just your view in that a philosophy seems to be, kind of imply something that you have devoted yourself to, Right? It's a way of thinking and living you've devoted yourself to. And so the kind of philosophy, I mean, if you look at the, the root of the words, it just means uh, Sophia is wisdom, and philo is one of the words for friend or love in the Bible or in the Greek culture. And so a philosopher is supposed to be a lover of wisdom. However, if that wisdom is not rooted on God's self-revealing then it's, rooted, then, it's, then, it, then it's wisdom rooted on what? It's human. And so there are human philosophies, human, human ways of viewing life that are at odds with how God has revealed himself in Jesus. Most Christians have pretty clear about this, that Jesus is the brightest display of what God is like that has ever happened in human history or will ever happen so I'm saying Justin Martyr, first century, he had a philosophy, but it was centered on the person of Jesus as what God has to say about life and himself and us and everything. Worldly philosophies are often not only not rooted in Christ, but they're in many ways incompatible with Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Ways of thinking and living that are not rooted in Jesus. Now, through philosophy and empty deceit. 
Now, if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, correct? Right. You think it's right, correct? If I trick you, you don't know you got tricked until afterward. And the empty part of the deceit means it's promising you one thing. It's a philosophy. It's a way of thinking and living that's offering you something but not delivering on the promise. It seems like it's going to fulfill you, make your life better, make you full, make you strong, make you wise, make you good. It seems, it seems like, but it doesn't deliver. Does this remind you of anything? And Eve saw that the fruit looked good for food and for the acquiring of wisdom, so she took some and ate it and gave it to Adam, who was with. Does it sound familiar? It's a way that seems right. Does that sound like a proverb? There is a way... That seems right to a man, but what? But in the end, it leads to death. So Paul's like, guys, there are worldly systems of thinking, there are philosophies that aren't rooted in Jesus, but they're actually incompatible with Jesus. And they're very influential in your culture. And you're in your culture. And these ways of thinking and living, they seem like they're going to be good things. They seem, they seem true. They seem good. They seem loving. They seem hopeful. But they don't deliver on their promise, and they actually make you a slave. Then he goes further. They're not just empty philosophies, not rooted on Jesus. They're not just empty deceits that seem to provide something but don't. Then he says they come from human traditions. If I were to ask you, is tradition good or bad, what would you say? Either way, iffy. It depends, right? What tradition are we talking about? Because there's good tradition and bad tradition. Is it a good tradition that we sit around and eat a bunch of turkey and overstuff ourselves with lots of food on Thanksgiving? I think so. I think that's a wonderful tradition. Is it a good tradition that we celebrate Jesus in the wintertime when it's like in the bleakest, darkest months and we come up with an excuse to give each other a bunch of presents and go, you know what, Uh, we'll just say Jesus was born and uh, even though he wasn't born around there, we'll say he was born there, we'll give each other gifts. I think that's a good tradition. Is it a good tradition that when we come together, we we remember Jesus and we share a cup of, of juice for us, wine if you're more of the ancient churches, and bread and remember that he gave his body for us and shed his blood for us to save us because he loves us and the whole center of our faith is that there's mercy for sinners and God loves us? That's a good tradition. Is it a good tradition that we dunk people in a water tank to say that they're brand new and their old life has been washed clean and they died with Jesus and now they're rising with Jesus? These are good traditions. Is it a good tradition that when they die, we give the Catholic Church lots of money hoping that we can get them out of purgatory if other people who are in a room doing secret things pray their way out? I don't think so. I don't think that's even true. And I'm not here to bash Catholics. I'm pointing out that there are good traditions and bad traditions. There was a story of a, of a, a, a spiritual leader and he was a part of a group and the whole group, every time they would gather to pray, they would make sure they tied a cat to the tree nearby. An outsider, it's always an outsider. An outsider visits and says, this is interesting. What's the significance of the cat? <laughs> oh, brother, we always do that. Yeah, okay. But why? Oh, we don't ask such questions. So he's like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. These, these monks, why do they always tie up a cat near the tree when they pray? It's so weird. Well, he went to the leader. and, the, and the, Why do we do this? And the guy said, because the guy who trained me to 
pray? He did it. Oh, well, let's go to him. Father, why do we do this? Well, because the, the dude who trained me, he's in heaven now. You can't ask him. And then they go and they check in the manuals and they go, oh, the first guy who founded our movement happened to have a cat and it always ran off. So they had to tie it to the tree. And now we've been doing it ever since. It's not particularly damaging, but it is really stupid and there's no reason for it. And it's certainly not necessary. So a lot of traditions are like that, aren't they? Some traditions are really good and helpful. Some traditions are really bad and harmful. And some traditions are, honestly, you could take them or leave them, but they don't really matter. But there are some traditions. And Paul's, this is the kind of tradition Paul's warning about. There's philosophies, ways of thinking and living. They're not built on Jesus, and they're actually incompatible with Jesus. They can't work with Jesus. And they're in the culture. And he knows they could get in the church. And then there's empty deceits built into the, some of those. And then some of these things, they're completely accepted. They're traditions. They're, complete, they're completely accepted to the point where we don't even ask why. We just go along with it. We can't even bring ourselves to wonder why because we don't even know there would be another way to do it. And Paul's like, actually, that could be really dangerous and then he throws in this final phrase. In your Bible, what is it, how does it render the final phrase? Philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and then it has one more phrase. How does it say it in yours in Colossians 2.8? Uh-huh. The last, what's the last thing he's telling us to be careful that we're not taken captive by? What does yours say? So in your translation, it renders this phrase, the basic principles of this world. That's a really good translation. Anybody else? What does yours say? The spiritual powers. Anybody else? The, the, that's a literal translation. Thank you, Mary. That's literally what it, what it says in the Greek. The stoicheia, the elemental spirits. That's fascinating. This phrase, stoicheia, basic principles. This, this phrase is used in Galatians as well by Paul to talk about this strange way in which, man, i got to back up. We know there's a spiritual battle, right? We know that Satan fell from heaven and a third of the angels were led into rebellion against God with him, Correct? We could preach a whole different sermon on that one day showing you the various biblical texts that reveal that. These angelic powers had originally responsibility to steward authority over the earth. Now that they are in rebellion, they are still exercising influence over human civilization. This word is referring to them. Later he'll refer to them as the rulers and authorities. Later on, it will Paul will show Jesus freeing us, breaking us out of the chain of being enslaved to these demonic powers. He will die on the cross and free us from God's law, which we broke and condemns us. And that through freeing us by taking on the curse of being a lawbreaker for us, he died in our place, and then broke the record, Colossians 2 says, 
the written record of accusations against us, making a public display of his victory over these powers and principalities. This, here's what I'm, where I'm getting to. For some reason, these demonic powers, these stoicheia, these basic principles of the world, are so influential and so pervasive, and somehow they use religion to enslave us just as much as they use rebellion to enslave us. Now, again, I started by saying nobody thinks they're deceived. Nobody thinks they serve Satan. But Ephesians chapter 2 says every single one of us, by nature, is God's enemy and under the power of the spirit that is at work in the world. Who's with me? John says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now, that's not something that I think we want to preach about because we say things like, well, Jesus is Lord. Well, he is. He's the rightful Lord. But is the world living in that lordship? Or is the world following after the demonic rebellion? Check out Peter. He says to Jesus, when Jesus says, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to lay my life down to redeem. And Peter says what to him? Don't you dare. That'll never happen to you. I'm he says, I'm going to go. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'll be spat on. I'll be flogged. I'll be beaten. I'll be killed. And on the third day, I'll rise. And Peter says, that'll never happen to you. How can you talk this way? Aren't, you're, you're blessed. Such things should never happen to a blessed man. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Hold on. Are you saying that much of the normal human way that we value and evaluate actually is demonic, Jesus? Is that what you are saying? Yes, that is what he is saying. And look what, how Peter's reasoning. Self-preservation. The, the, the great enemy, the great demonic enemy to the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of Satan where Satan is worshipped and we all have pentagrams and we sacrifice goats and babies and go, ah, we love evil. That's not the enemy of the kingdom of God. The enemy of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of self. And it's so sneaky and deceptive it doesn't look evil. To humans, it often looks wise and good. Who's tracking with what I'm saying? So Paul says, guys, you started with Jesus. But the great danger is that you'll drift from Jesus because of the influence of people. People who seem to be offering you a better way to live. But ultimately, the philosophy is not rooted in the person, the person of Jesus. We're not relating to an idea. We're relating to a living being who is here. That's biblical faith, not the God of, philosoph of the philosophers. There was a mathematician, a great mathematician called Blaise Pascal, and he was a, a passionate evangelist for Jesus. 
He was also an intellectual, and he came up with some mathematical ideas that were groundbreaking at the time. But what actually drove the man was his relationship with God. After he died, they found sewn into the pocket of his jacket a note. And on that note was written an experience he had. And all he says is something like, from midnight till a quarter to three, fire. The timestamp, from this time to this time, fire, 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 love, light, life. And then he says this, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does he mean? Not some far off distant idea, not some reasoning not some intellectually stimulating reasoning about how the world operates and should be, but the first person encounter with the God who comes near. And that encounter marked him so thoroughly that it changed him permanently, and he kept it always by his heart in his jacket pocket. We are presenting not an alternative worldview, We are not just providing a different way of thinking, a different belief system with different values. We are. I hope all of us meditate deeply and daily on Jesus, the historical real Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because we don't get to reform him in, in our own image and likeness and preference. He doesn't change with the times. And man, the times change quick. When I grew up, this was right, and that was wrong, and then 10 minutes later, that's wrong. Who's next? What's next? And we're so sure of our passionate moral judgments, and what are they rooted in? What's popular now in our culture? So if I had some hungry, brand new believers, and they said, Tim, we want to live well in Jesus. What do you want to say to us? I would say, well, one thing that seems really important to know is that if you start with Jesus, you will face false upgrades throughout your life. The culture and the church and your personal experience will lie to you. I'll say those three again. Ready? The culture and the church. I'm not down on churches. I'm giving my life to serve the churches, and I hope you do too. And your personal experience will lie to you. And they will tell you things that seem true, but lead you to death. Let's talk about the culture. When you and I see a culture that we're not a part of, it's very easy to be like, look at all their blind spots. Right? If I said, let's consider the ancient Roman culture that had gladiators get into a ring and fight to the death for our entertainment. Does that seem okay to you? They love that stuff. If you said, this is immoral, these people matter, they are made in the image of God, how dare you mistreat a fellow 
child of the Most High, made in his image and likeness, who's worth the blood of Jesus, they'd be like, shut up and throw him in the ring. Let's have him fight a lion, which they did. They can't see the blind spot. It's a blind spot. If we were doing little small group discussions, one of my questions would be, America is a culture, the one we're in. I happen to love it here. However, there are things that we as Americans value that we're blind to that are not compatible with the life we have in Jesus. And if I were asking some questions, I would say, discuss what are some things that you think might be accepted in our culture or celebrated in our culture that are incompatible with Jesus? And what are some things that are rejected in our culture that are completely compatible with Jesus? You're already thinking of them. I can see it on your faces. I'll just throw out one. Uh, the idea that you wait until you are married to have sex with someone and then you only have sex with that person for the rest of your life is a pretty simple concept. I think I'm not going too far when I say that our culture thinks that you'd be dumb to do it that way because why would you buy a cow that you haven't like tasted the milk? That's a terrible metaphor. Should I look over here? Help me, Jesus. You can see how flustered I am now. I'm about to knock Doug's... I should write out my notes uh, next time. But that's the logic. I'll even go further. Nowadays, oral sex is considered like just a way of saying thank you for a good meal. Our culture is morally very far away from the wise, loving design of Jesus. Amen. And they don't even think that would be wise and loving. They think that would be foolish and dumb and it would make your life boring and stupid. And after all, I know what, what makes me happy. That's just one example. We could talk about our culture in power. We could talk about our, our culture in money. We could talk about a lot of things. But it's very easy to judge those outside the church, isn't it? It gets a little bit more, uh-oh, when, when we get closer to home. There are, so there's cultural blind spots where things take us captive and when we're influenced by them. It's, it's not so much that you're judging. Making a moral judgment about whether something is right or wrong is not the same as judging someone, right? But when you despise them in your heart for doing that, that's, that's a judgment. Then we're judging, right? Because I screw up stuff too. And I would hope that, that people continue to love me and help me get better rather than be like, idiot, stupid moron, I hope you burn in hell, freaking jerk. <laughs> like, that's judging, right? Coming to me in love and saying, I, I want to help you, this thing concerns me, blah, 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 and you're gentle. That's not judging, that's being redemptive. But we are responsible for, our, for the church, yeah. right? Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Paul says, I don't even judge people outside the church. They don't know Jesus. They don't know better. And that's why they need us to live better so that they can see a better way. Not yell louder. Live better. Because wisdom is proven by her fruit, by her children, not by her sermon. I think we're content to angrily say, you worldly people are idiots. 
And then we're shocked when they don't like us. It's like, oh, I'm being persecuted. You're not persecuted. You're just mean, and people don't like being treated that way. There are things in our culture, in our world, that are incompatible with Jesus. Religious idols are harder for us to spot. And that would be my second discussion question if I were sending you into small groups. What are some religious blind spots where we are in danger of being taken captive and make the gospel powerless and make ourselves more enslaved? Because we've had bad, human, unbiblical, but seemingly biblical traditions. And then the third piece is I talked about personal experience leading us astray. You go through life, you get hurt. Am I right? You sin and you get sinned against. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. And Christianity is not a way to get rescued out of ever being hurt again. (laughs) I think one of the things happening in our culture right now is a genuine desire to figure out how do we address wrongs that are done to people within culture. And so people's philosophies are, how do we address this injustice, this wrong that's done? Jesus has a very clear and very helpful way of providing resources for people who have sinned and for people who have been sinned against. And our culture's efforts, uh, my wife and I are having a robust conversation about social justice. My argument, since you don't have the microphone and I do, my argument is that lots of efforts to bring about social justice are not working and they're not rooted in Jesus. Not rooted in loving the very people we're mad and hurt by, mad at and hurt by. We're not, we're not, it gets me off on a tangent. I don't want to get into too much. But suffice to say, sometimes good desires for good things lead to more problems than when we started. The elemental spirits. We're in a spiritual war. And the demonic strategy is not, again, to get you to paint a pentagram on the wall in goat's blood and sacrifice a baby. The demonic strategy is to get you disconnected from Jesus. He don't mind if you've got a lot of Bible verses driving your decisions and values and and agendas. He don't mind. I'm going to spend my whole life and we're going to make sure the Ten Commandments are preached at the elementary school near my house. What a waste of time. You know what I want? I want Jesus in the hearts of the children. Because the law doesn't give life. All it does is reveal how out of kilter our lives are. And if you get Jesus on the inside, then love, which is the whole point of all the law, will be fulfilled as they are led by the Spirit and as they grow in relationship with Him. And guess what? They, ain't, they can't make a rule, even if they make a rule, that gets Jesus out of the schools. How do you legislate the Holy Spirit to go away? He won't. Even if we are in chains, the word of God is not chained. So our mindset doesn't need to be to fight a cultural battle to get the kingdom to come through those dumb means. What if our battle is not against flesh and blood and we can be the salt and the light and we can manifest Jesus even where it's not legal? Because we all know this, right? There's a big difference between what's ethical and what's legal. There's a lot of stuff that's legal that is not ethical. I'll wait. There's a lot of stuff that's legal that is not ethical. I guess I just really want the amen on that point. Amen. And there's a lot of stuff 
that is ethical, that is illegal. And so what are we called to do? We're always called to do what Jesus said, no matter who else says anything else, right? All right, let's finish up. So there's deception in there. There's philosophy. There's human traditions that aren't built on Jesus. There's human, and there's demonic power fueling and whispering in the ear of people. Do what's, do self. Go after self. It's all about you and how you feel. And it's how other people feel too. Oh, if they, if you, if they don't feel loved by you, you must not be loving them. My parents hurt my feelings when I was a kid. They'd be like, don't eat that. Give me that. It's going to give you cavities. Go brush your teeth. How dare they? I'm going to get a lawyer. I'd lie to them and stuff, and they'd spank me. How dare they spank me? I'm abused. I should be able to lie if I want. Made me happy. Sneak out by the Kroger's and illegally use my allowance money to drink Pepsi behind the neighbor's pine trees. I can do what I want. I really did that, by the way. I earned money by doing chores, but we were told we were only allowed to buy candy or soda certain times of the year or certain amounts with permission. Well, I would sneak over to the Kroger's and they had them glass bottles for 50 cents. And you'd put the, ooh, them glass bottles. Remember back in the day, you'd have like commercials on TV and in one, like in one swig, the, the, like Christy Brinkley or somebody would drink an entire bottle. <laughs> The whole thing. And I'd be like, that's painful. When I grow up, I'm going to be just like Christy Brinkley. So beautiful. But she sold Coke, if I remember correctly. I don't remember. But I was a Pepsi guy, still am. Coke is acceptable. You can use it to clean your toilet and stuff. Um, actually, it's good, but Pepsi's just a little better. Blind taste test by Carl revealed it. Carl thought he was drinking Coke because he liked it so much. Turned out it was Pepsi and John Mast. You, you can't tell me you didn't, that didn't happen. You told me it happened. I am so off point here. Let's get back on the sermon. <laughs> but our culture is so self. Kingdom of self is so driving things that we measure what love is by how people say they feel. Jesus, how dare, how dare you tell me anything I'll tell you how he dares, because he loves you enough to offend you. Right? He loves me enough to contradict my broken way of thinking and living that is killing me and hurting others. Final thought here is this. Should we then study deception so we can identify deception? Should we start websites and call everyone out on their deception? Oh, man, I spent time on those websites. They have lists and lists of anyone who's doing anything for Jesus is a heretic, and I'll tell you why. They taught a thing, they said a thing, and it violated my understanding of this passage. Heretic, false teacher. Billy Graham, Beth Moore, everybody that you respect, Tim Keller, they're all sellouts. Ironically, this person who is trying to protect the church from deception is accusing and condemning and judging Others, Satan's name is the accuser. This person who's in the, in the name of protecting people from demonic deception is literally doing the work of Satan. And the people he's condemning are like the most helpful saints whose teaching is the most useful. It's crazy. So that's a heresy hunting attitude. Is that the right approach to not being deceived? Guys, if you want to find counterfeit money, what do you do? 
Like five people at the same time said the same thing in very different phrases. You, you spend time studying the real. You want to recognize deception? Study the truth. You want to find a counterfeit? Study the authentic. There was a dude and he was like, I want to be a master jade smith. It's a Chinese proverb or story, parable. So he goes to the guy who's a master jade smith. He goes, train me, you great genius who makes beautiful jewelry. And the guy said, all right, show up tomorrow, tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. Guy shows up at 5 a.m. He goes, sweep the, sweep the room. He sweeps the room. All right, stack those over there. He's just doing menial tasks all day long. Doesn't even get to work with jade. Then near the end, the guy throws him a jade stone, uncut. And he says, look at it. Next couple of days, 5 a.m. again. Sweep the place, make everything in order. Wait on me, hand and foot, and then hold a jade stone. When am I going to get to cut the stone? You'll get there. This happens for weeks. He gets bitter. Who does this guy think he is? Doesn't he know I have more things I could be doing with my time than sit around cleaning for him for free? Did I mention it was for free? It's an internship. He's so mad. He goes in. Finally, he's like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And the guy says, that's fine. You can quit if you want. And then he tosses him a stone. He, he goes, what in the world? Again with this? And he looks down. And he goes, that ain't Jade. And the guy says, now you're ready. See, sometimes in life, Jesus keeps talking to you, and you're like, that's boring, Jesus. Why can't you say something new? Why can't you say something deep? Why can't you say something profound? Then something bumps into your life, and you go, that ain't what the Bible says. Sometimes it's not all about gee whiz and being tickled and entertained. Sometimes it's about walking with. If you want to unmask deception, if you want to stay clear of it, study the real. And what does this mean? Just learn about Jesus? Well, yeah, you want to learn about you want to spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you know the thing that makes the most difference? You actually relate to Jesus. Amen. We don't have a philosophy built on someone who's not with us. Our whole thing is built on the person who is here. Amen. 